This is the Inner Voice Audio Experience, and I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Endurance athletes spend a lot of time in their own heads, and their own self-talk can either drive them towards their goals or crush them in an instant. We often focus on mastering the body, but these battles play out in the mind. I host inspiring athletes and innovators from across the endurance sports industry and explore the trials and tribulations that often play out well before race day and in their personal lives. You will recognize the names, but you won't have heard their stories told like this before. Today's episode is an amazing conversation I had with Ken Rideout while he was in town for the Boston Marathon. For those of you who know Ken, you'll understand what I mean when I say he might possibly be the most interesting man in the world. As you'll hear, Ken set himself an ambitious goal of running a sub-230 marathon and winning the Masters category. While he missed this goal by a couple of minutes, as always, he left it all out on the course, as you'd expect. During our conversation, Ken shares some intimate details about his life growing up in inner city Boston, the journey he took into endurance sports, and the challenges him and his wife faced trying to have their first child. Ken now has four kids and is in the process of adopting a fifth child. This really was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. Some of the one-liners are incredible, and the rest you'll have to hear for yourself. I'm very grateful to be able to bring these conversations to you, and it wouldn't be possible without the support from iCore Labs, who are the sponsor of today's Inner Voice audio experience. iCore is a clean, natural source of recovery-enhancing, full-spectrum hemp extract. They design their products with athletes in mind, and their goal is to protect your body from the stresses of training, improve recovery from intense efforts, and maintain a positive mental state. They believe you can experience meaningful improvements in your well-being through small lifestyle changes, which is why they focus on the benefits of sleep, decreasing inflammation, and increasing mindfulness. They have just released a topical treatment which I am excited to try. They also have a special offer for you to try iCore, which I'll share with you at the end of the show. I appreciate Ken for his time, especially the day before the race, and I hope you enjoy the show. Here I am with... Ken, right out. Ken, how are you, mate? Good, man. How are you? Fantastic. Just to set the scene a little bit, we're sitting in your hotel room here in Boston. We've just watched Tiger Woods win the Masters, and you're about to attack the Boston Marathon course tomorrow morning. How are you feeling? Confident. I I believe you, because when I sent you a text this week to see how you are feeling, the response was, quote, unquote, I'm feeling strong AF with no excuses. <laughs> I'm a big believer in telling people what your goals are so you can't uh, walk them back and there's a huge level of accountability there. So by telling people what my time goals are and that I have no excuses and I feel strong, um, I feel like, you know, now the pressure's on and, and I always, I think the pressure like is added motivation and when you're in those dark places in a marathon, you need anything you can to keep you going. Love it. And I think it's refreshing because a lot of, the people we probably know, uh, endurance athletes, are somewhat 
traditional sandbaggers. So there's every excuse <laughs> under the sun. They didn't get enough training, but then you look back at their Strava and they didn't miss a workout. Exactly. So it's nice to hear that uh, you're ready and you're fired up and uh, and you're going to make it happen. What are your goals for tomorrow if you're willing to share? Yeah, of course I am. Are you crazy? Uh, someone said to me this morning that they saw a shirt that said uh, PR or ER, which is typically how my races end, coincidentally. <laughs> I'm going to try to run as close to 230 as possible, preferably 229.59. Um, the last two times out, I ran 233 in Tucson and then 234 this past December in Sacramento. But the Sacramento race, and I just want to point out, everything in life is relative. Like some people are going to hear, oh, you ran 234 and you're disappointed. But, you know, if your goal is 230 and you run 234, yeah, it's disappointing. If you're a 254 guy, then to run in 234 would be great. But that's that wasn't my goal. So I don't mean to disparage anyone else's accomplishments. We all have our own battles. And um, I ran that first half in 110 <laughs> and ended at 234. So you can imagine what the last five miles look like, a uh, complete death march. So I'm going to try to run 115 and 115 uh, back to back and see how that goes tomorrow. Try a new strategy. Patience. <laughs> Patience and take your time. Now, have you ran Boston before? I've done it a couple times before, but again, was like before I really started getting serious about training where um, once I was happy to finish a marathon, I think I ran 330. Uh, maybe 10 years ago. And then maybe four years ago ish, I ran, um, 258. And at the time I remember thinking if I could run under three hours, man, that would be the greatest thing ever. And then like everything, you know, your goals, you reach one goal and it's kind of like, I wonder if I can take 10 more minutes and then 20 minutes, you know, and it just keeps like slowly progressing much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> I bet. And what do you think has been that big shift for you? Cause that's a big drop in 10 years. Um, what, what's been a big shift in, in being able to get from a 3.30 to a 3, 2.30? Um, I think that my times kept coming down by like big gaps. Like, so I ran a 258. My next time out, I ran 245, then 240, then 233. And each time I hit kind of a new milestone, I realized that I probably have a lot more to give. Like, I, I mean, when I tell people I run 10 to 15 miles a day, I think most people look at me like I'm crazy. But if you look at what elite marathoners are doing 120 to 140 miles a week, that's not a lot. So I kind of, try to be rational about it, but I look at what the best guys are doing and try to like find a, some version of that that works for me. Obviously, I'm not going to, my body is too big and I have not enough time to recover mainly to run those kind of miles. But I did, I did get 200 mile weeks in, in this last 10 weeks. And, um, I, I think that the biggest difference is, is mindset and um training i don't do any track workout i've n i've never really done a track workout maybe once or twice in my life i just run a lot of miles and when i feel good i run hard i'll mix in some fart like workouts like on on for a minute and a half off for two minutes on for three minutes like random and occasionally i'll do like uh one mile efforts on the beach but most of my work is done in the trails um with big elevation uh gains so, like, on a 10-mile run, I'll get, like, 2,000 feet. Right. So, you're not necessarily tracking pace during those runs. You're just looking at vertical gain. You're looking at building strength. You're looking at building resilience from the downhills, things like that. 
Exactly. I mean, obviously I look at the pace and I know if I'm under eight minute pace on those efforts, I know that that's an honest effort. I mean, for that distance in those trails. Um, but when I do do efforts, like occasionally I'll do tempo runs up there. And if I can get it under seven minutes with that kind of elevation, that's like all out effort, you know, probably like the equivalent of a sub five, sub six minute on the uh, beach. Um, but yeah, I love it up there. It's just like my my morning sanctuary. Like it, it, there isn't a single day that goes by that I don't think when I'm up there, like how beautiful it is. And I've never really had that experience before in training in the city or in uh, urban settings. Now, you've got some pretty good recent form. You ran in Philly a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I think you won your category by about 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. You'd, you'd been at the fights the night before. You yeah. got up early. You went with our friend Rob Moore down to Philly to run that half. What was that like? Yeah, we. Um, I flew in a couple of days before that to mainly to go to the fight with Teddy Atlas, who's um, co-host of the podcast that I do called The Fight with Teddy Atlas. He trains Alex Vosdick, the light heavyweight champ. So we we went down to Philly for the night to watch the fights. You know, we were in South Philly probably till like 1230. And uh, woke up at five to run the Philly half just because the race was there. And I was like, you know what? I got to run anyway. So let's get up and run this race. And uh, yeah, that was, I had done a hundred miles the week before and 87 miles the week of that race. And then uh, that actually, that 13 miles got me to a hundred for the second week in a row. And I ran uh, 112 and was um, either fifth or eighth overall. I don't know. The website says fifth, but I thought I was in eighth, but anyway nice and then um this is a little bit of a homecoming for you in coming back to boston um <laughs> tell me about that you've got the big b on your hat there um what's it like coming back home um you know mixed emotions it's not um uh you know i'm i i don't like being away from my wife and kids and when i'm here i don't have a lot of time to do anything else because i put a lot of time and effort into this training so when i come in i don't want to I'm not necessarily trying to avoid anyone, but I don't want to selfishly inconvenience myself. It's just a lot of time and effort to, to have a good result here. So I kind of check into the hotel and try to stay as isolated as I can, which I know sounds probably sounds crazy to a lot of people, but I figure I'll have some time after the race and maybe see some people. But for now, I like to be under the radar, kind of hanging out by myself. Well, I appreciate you making time for me to come and um, join you in your hotel here. Uh, it means a lot that you, you made that time. So, um, what uh, what was life like growing up for you? Oh, interesting question. I um, yeah, I grew up in like really a blue collar working class inner city neighborhood, um, and it was uh, challenging to say the least. You know, my parents had me when they were nineteen and twenty. And uh, uh, I'm trying to say this as diplomatically as I can. I've learned all the things not to do with my own kids. So in that regard, it's um, it was kind of a blessing in, in a certain way. And it also built up some resilience in me. Like um, as an example, when I went to college, no one else in my family had gone to college. Um, I worked full time as a guard at a um, prison in just outside of Boston. And coincidentally, my younger brother was in that prison shortly after I stopped working there. So that kind of gives some context of my childhood. The two kids that grew up in the same house ended up in very di on di very different paths. So, um, yeah, it was, there was some positives and, uh, no shortages, no shortage of negatives either. And what did, uh, what role did sport play for you in your life growing up? 
I was my savior. It was like my escape. It was something that I, um, luckily my dad was into sports, so he would come and get us. My parents were divorced uh, early on. So he would come and get me to go play um, hockey primarily as a kid. That was my main focus. And then when I got to um, high school, I played football and hockey. And then I played both in college as well. But I was kind of like jack of all trades, master of none. I was like good enough to be on the team, but never like a real star. And um, just got into endurance sports as I was like an adult. And I also boxed a little through high school and college. And then I'll, and then I boxed a lot more frequently when I got to um, New York City. I fought for the New York Athletic Club for a little while. Um, what was that journey into endurance sports? We, you know, you you mentioned team sports, which a lot of us um, play growing up, and you you learn a lot of skills from being involved in a team environment. Um, and then as we get older, traditionally a lot of people move into singly focused individual sports like endurance sports. What was your journey to getting into endurance? Yeah, good question. When I was boxing, I was running a lot, obviously, and. Um as I was running, I started to have like some knee issues, which which ended up being just a tight um, IT band pulling on my like patella tendon, like I think a lot of people probably deal with. And um, I bought a bike, didn't know anything, and there was a guy in my office who <laughs> fancied himself a good cyclist and would ask me to ride. And I went to ride with him. I had like all the wrong sh stuff on. I had, you know, running shorts, a t-shirt, no helmet. I didn't know anything. You know, I just showed up, but I smashed him. And I was like, man, either he sucks or I'm a, I'm decent at this. And it was probably a combination of both. And then just like anyone else, you know how it goes. Like you get one bike and then you're like, you know, a month later, I'm like, I got to get the better bike. And then, you know, the new shoes. And it just like kind of evolved. And I started to get more involved in riding with people and started to pick up things and get better. And once I realized that you kind of control your own limitations. Like the more time you put in, the better you're going to get. And at the end of the day, unlike um, hockey or boxing, no one's going to punch you in the face. So does, you can suffer till your heart's desire. And I, I liked being able to like out suffer people. And, and again, on a relative basis, I realized that I'm not out suffering like elite professional athletes, but you know what, whatever gets you through the race, right? Whatever your motivation is. And I like to think about the competition and think about what kind of training they're doing. And it motivates me to improve and keep grinding. What was the time frame of this? How, how long ago was this when you started riding your bike and, and running and things like that? So I probably bought the bike in 07, did my first triathlon in 2008, not probably dissimilar to a lot of people. You know, you show up to a race, I had water to wash my feet off, uh, you know, and like all these uh, <laughs> things that now in hindsight seem funny and changing my clothes and having a towel to dry myself off. Whereas now, as you know, you know, you could run like, uh, you could do the Alcatraz race and run across broken glass to get to your bike and jump on with like, you know, half your leg missing and you'd be like, I'll be good, I'll get it at the finish line but back then i was like i gotta get all this sand off my feet i'm gonna get a blister you know it's just funny how your mindset evolves the more you get involved in in something like whatever it is rock climbing skiing you know whatever it is you just realize that there's the the, the only real limitations are how much you, your time and your commitment you know so so probably in 08, I did my first race. And then I want to say I qualified for Kona the first time in 2012. So really in 2008, I mean, I was like, kind of didn't know what the hell I was doing. But so in 2009, I started to train. I, I, I think I probably did a half Ironman or something in 
2010. Then I started to think like, I want to do an Ironman. And then that, as soon as I did it, I was like, I bet I can go to Hawaii if I try hard enough. And eventually I did that. And yeah, it's been, um, it's been a huge, um, positive, had a huge positive impact on my life for sure. Did you have any mentors or people that you leaned on when you were first starting out that were able to guide you or did, was it kind of like trial by error and you just find your way through it? Yeah, more trial by error. I mean, obviously I have some friends that I would train with, but no one really consistent or no one kind of mentoring me. I mean, at one point I did have uh, Jimmy Riccatello coach me for a year. We had a mutual friend in Lance and uh, Jimmy was um, was incredibly helpful. He's just a super nice guy and a good friend. So he was... Um, he was pretty helpful once I had like a basic understanding and um, he actually coached me in 2013 when I went back to Kona. I had a decent race there. I think I did like 939 in that, in that context, under 940. And um, yeah, it was good to have some structure in a little, but that was the only time I ever really had an endurance coach just because at the time I really didn't know enough. And like the nutrition part was always a big component for me. I've always enjoyed the 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 suffering and the training, it's the technical stuff that I start to get lost. When people are like, what is your power and heart rate and FTP and, and sweat rate? I'm like, dude, now it's like a second job. I don't get paid to do this. And that's work to me. The, the workout, I can do it. I like it. But even with the running, like I said, I have no structure. I just run a lot. I know I want to get a hundred miles a week. I know I've got to average like 15 to, you know, plus miles. And so I try to break it up like that. And, um, but if I don't feel it, and I have 15 miles, maybe I'll do 10 and try to get five after work. Uh, so it's was been the same mindset in, in, in triathlon and the trial and error, but I really needed help with the nutrition. I just wasn't getting through the race efficiently and Jimmy helped with that big time. Would it be safe to say that you have a bit of a natural talent for suffering? Um, it seems like, you know, you can push yourself to a limit that other people probably aren't willing to go to. And maybe that's a bit of the secret unlock for you. Um, you know, a lot of people will be sitting here probably listening going, well, you know, I've got three coaches and I've got a nutritionist and I've got all the best gear and I know all my FBTP and I can't get any better. What do you think that is for you? Is it is it that ability to suffer? I, You know what? I'm like pretty self-deprecating. I think it's a bit of a uh, suffering, but it's also a lot of insecurity. The fear of losing is so much more powerful to me than um, my motivation to win. And I know it sounds crazy, but um, I, I, I so desperately don't want to lose. I'd love to win, but I don't want to embarrass myself. And again, I know everything is relative. Um, and that's part of the reason why I tell people what my goals are. If they ask, I mean, I'm not advertising my shit. Like I know people, <laughs> most people like are like, you know, amateur age group athlete, who cares? But um, yeah, I do think that the mental component though is is significant because I, I try to stress to people who ask me about my journey, like, hey, you 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 can do anything you want. Like I, I ran a 3.30 marathon and thought it would be impossible to break three hours and then just decided like, you know what? I don't want to limit myself to just that goal. I, I want to try to win the master's division or win my age group in Boston um, or win my age group in Kona, which I've never done, but I would like to. Um but I think that, yeah, the biggest limitation for a lot of people is the mental component. Like, you're, you're, you're in control of whether or not how much you train. And if you put in the work and endurance, you don't need 
uh, talent to hit a baseball or uh, run a four three forty. Like anyone can do this, and 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 I think that I'm proof of that. I've played a lot of sports and was never elite or super talented at everything. I just wanted to win, and that really has applied to um, endurance sports. And where does that fear of losing come from? Is that is that coming from you as a kid? Is it something that like have you been able to put your finger on where that comes from? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with um, being a kid and um, wanting to be accepted either by my dad or by peers or fit in or have an identity because it was it was difficult childhood at times. And, uh, you know, that was the one thing I identified with. And, and, you know, I feel a little bit guilty in the sense that even now it affects my wife and kids because like, I still have this like feeling of wanting to be relevant in something and it can be very selfish at times. And I'm super aware of it, but I stress that being aware of a problem doesn't mean you're doing anything to fix it. And I'm aware that just identifying that I'm doing this isn't necessarily a step in the right direction until you actually take action. And, you know, at some point, this is something that I probably have to work out and figure out a, like a healthier balance. Talk to me about that balance. You've got a very important job. You have a family. Your wife has her own business. You've mm-hmm. got four kids. You travel a lot. You've got your athletics. How do you balance all of that? <laughs> well, the running I do first thing in the morning. And um, I was telling this someone this the other day. It's never a negotiation. Like I've never, ever woken up and said, you know what? I don't feel like doing this today. I'm too tired. I, 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 I just never happened. I just get up and do it. I know that the, 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 the kind of depression I'll carry around the rest of the day from not getting that endorphin rush in the morning, it's almost like a necessary evil at times. So I try to like, that's what I do first thing in the morning. Then I'll get up and go to the office. And you know, that is that that's probably the thing that I struggle with the most is finding a balance between everything of trying to work, spend time with all four of the kids. It's really important that they each get their own individual attention. Um, and, and I do try to do that. We take, I try to take time to spend with each kid maybe once a month. So I took my daughter to New York recently to see uh, frozen on Broadway, I took my oldest son to see the uh, Red Sox win the World Series in LA and he w- I took him to the fights the other night too just because he's he's old enough the other two little boys are um <laughs> I took the two older boys to a monster trucks once and thank god one of my older son's friends was there with his dad because my middle son started crying and got scared of the loud trucks after like badgering me to take them to monster trucks I I, I don't know anything about monster trucks the kids just wanted to go so we bought tickets as soon as they start the engines my the, the five-year-old's like started crying he wants to go so luckily the other kids kid's dad took uh, my son Jack home and I had to leave with Luke like five minutes into the show. So hence why he didn't get to go to the fights. <laughs> Cause I keep telling them I'm going to take this, that fight was at Staples center in LA near our house, but I've been telling them that I'm going to take them to a fight in Vegas. And after monster trucks, I was like, uh, listen, buddy, you might need another year or two before we can go to Vegas. Cause we're not leaving that event. Yeah. The monster trucks, we can leave. We're not leaving the fights. Yeah. Um, and so your oldest daughter is uh, she's adopted. She's yep. um, from Ethiopia. Um, what was that experience like for you and your wife? Oh, life changing! It was like um, 
you know, I don't want to say the happiest day of my life, but definitely in the top four, four or five with marrying my wife and then having the four kids. But, you know, adopting her was the same exact emotion as having the um, three boys. It's, um, it took a long time. They make that process, rightfully so, as difficult as it can be. It's kind of like, um, there, there's a motivational speech speaker, um, who does a little, um, like, description of a guy who wants to be great and he finds a guru and the guru brings him down to the beach and tells him to walk out into the water. I'm going to butcher this a little bit. You can find it if you Google enough of these phrases. And um, he tells the the, the student, um, keep coming, keep coming. He brings him out to the water and he holds him underwater and the kid starts fighting to get out of the water and he's holding him under. And right before he's about to pass out, he pops up and he's like, you see how hard you had to fight to save your life there? That's how hard you have to fight if you want to be the best at anything. And not to be dramatic, but the the the, the adoption is a, a, a lesser version of that. But it's like, if you don't want to do this more than anything, you won't. Because they make it just hard enough that you have to like jump through hoops and you got to get letters of recommendation. They got to be notarized. The notary has to be notarized. You have to get fingerprinted by two or three law enforcement agencies, background checks, just like a lot of legwork. And my wife, thank God, spearheaded most of that. So we went through about, it took about a year. And then they sent us a, a message that we have a, a newborn infant girl. We were, we were approved for twins. And they said we have a newborn, which is very rare. And um, to have someone so young. And again, they send you pictures and medical records. But as soon as we decided, before we had any of that, they said, we have this newborn little girl. I said, we'll take her. And they said, we're going to send you the medical reports. I said, dude, once you tell me that she's ours, like it's like having your own kid. What If, if they had some any kind of issue um, at birth, you wouldn't decide that you d- didn't want them. Like Once they said she's available, she was ours. And we... Um, she was four months. She weighed like seven or eight pounds, deathly sick. And uh, we went over there. My wife lived there for two months with custody of her. Like I said, I was there for the first week, but we didn't get her until the day I left. And then um, while I was there, coincidentally, my wife and I had struggled with um, fertility for three years leading up to this since we got married. We had um, you know, tried to have kids and weren't having any luck didn't have any identifiable uh, medical ailments, no problems. So she was taking some hormones and they were trying all these different things. We had did seven rounds of in vitro, all failed. She got pregnant three times, but had three miscarriages. And um, <laughs> I don't know if she'll be sensitive about me sharing this stuff, but if it can help someone who's going through something similar, then um, I'm sure she's cool with it. And um, so we went there. And again, if someone described this situation to me, I would have said, don't be crazy. That's just a coincidence that you got pregnant while you were right after you adopted. But that's exactly what happened to us. And I was there with her for a week. She must have got pregnant that week when I was home for about a month or six weeks. She was said she wasn't feeling well. So she's sick. The baby's deathly sick, not gaining weight. They've been to seven emergency rooms in Addis Ababa. And uh, she said, bring a pregnancy test with you when you come back. So when I when I went back over, she took the test, realized she was pregnant. But, you know, she had been pregnant three times before, so we weren't, like, overly optimistic. I was just like, all right, let's see what happens. And uh, first time that she had been pregnant naturally. And uh, sure enough, my son was due on my daughter's first birthday, came three weeks early. So they're, like, 11 months apart. And then the next every two-year anniversary we had another boy there for the next four years so they're all literally all the birthdays are within four or five weeks in the summer that's an amazing story and i think i really appreciate you for sharing it and i think you're right there 
probably people who, listening who are going through similar things. And um, yeah, what a what a what a crazy turn of events. But now, obviously, you've got a fantastic family. You mentioned you're looking to adopt another child as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, just to go back to what you were saying about the um, the journey, it, it's been incredible, and it's um, it's been so rewarding and challenging at the same time. And yeah, we're adopting another little girl. And, uh, you know, early on, my daughter has a very hard time being different. She's, she's not happy about it, but I tell her that eventually she's going to appreciate her differences, but it's, it's definitely a struggle at times dealing with her, um, emotions just because you're only as happy as your saddest kid. And knowing that she's struggling with anything, it <laughs> gets me choked up. So when we told her we were adopting another girl, um, she said to us that uh, she didn't want to be the only brown kid in the house. So we're we're going to have another little girl at some point. We're just any day now. We're just waiting to um, get the call. I really appreciate you sharing and I can see visibly that it does affect you. And I think that um, perhaps, you know, it is an opportunity for your oldest daughter to lead the path for the new daughter as well hopefully like maybe it'll give her that impetus to be like okay you know i can stick up for you because i know what i've been through yeah and my experience yeah you know and we we, we try not to like pussyfoot around with my daughter it's just like i'm probably a little bit tougher than my wife would like because you know she'll tell me she doesn't like certain situations and i tell her like that's okay you don't have to like everything life isn't fair you you I, we tell them all the time you get what you get and you don't get upset and you know I try to deliver that message while understanding and appreciating her sensitivities as well. But I, tr my wife does a much better job of being diplomatic, but I try not to over-dramatize it because I don't want to feed into her insecurities because I know my wife is handling things on a much more... Um, on a much more sensitive level. So I just tried to be tough with her and just remind her to be proud of who she is and proud of where she's from and you know, all you can do is like, do your best, man. Parenting, unfortunately, is like everyone has their own individual journey and it can be really challenging at times in ways that you had never anticipated. And there's like, as you know, having your own kid, you think all these things you're going to do when you have kids and then they hear and the next thing you know, it's like life has taken over and all these things that you wanted to do every day are like, if I can do that once a week, I'll be happy. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a balancing act and it's like everyone's own individual journey. Like my methods and techniques are definitely not going to work for some people and vice versa. Yeah. I love what you said there. And I think I actually had a moment yesterday. I was walking along, my wife uh, and I were walking with our daughter and I looked over and I was like, she's a human being. My wife's a human being. All of us have our own wants and needs and we all are like going to be looking for different things in life. And it just was this really uh, moment of time that kind of just paused and stood still. And I'm like, everything's great. We're so happy. My wife's running tomorrow. She's feeling fit and ready to go. We've got a great structure in the house. But like it could be thrown upside down at any time, at any moment in time. I, I tell people this all the time. I was talking to a colleague and she was stressed about something and I said, you live in the Pacific Palisades. You make a good living. We'd all like to have more, but you haven't accidentally run someone over with your car and facing vehicular homicide charges. You don't have a drunk driving conviction you're dealing with. Like, and even if you have those things, like, well, you know what? You didn't get accused of something you didn't do. I mean, there's a million things that could go wrong in your life and, and, and your one 
a split second away from everything. But you're right, it's important to take time and appreciate the things you do have and whatever motivation you have to use to recognize that. But to to come back to your point about looking at the kids and realizing like that's a human being. Like the other day I was talking to my wife and we were sitting in the bedroom and, the, and my um, youngest son came in and was like, I want to take a nap in here. So he was laying there and we were talking to him and I looked at my wife and I said, can you believe that we made this kid? Like he didn't even exist before I met you. And now he's here and he's like his own person. And he's like saying crazy things. And like, <laughs> we were watching the fight the other night and he said to me, he's three, he said, dad, I'm going to knock your tooth out. I said, you're going to knock my tooth out? And then we started wrestling around, but he, 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 I don't even know where he comes up with these things. But my wife reminds me always like, they hear everything you say, stop talking like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do. I, I, uh, my wife and I are realizing that very, very quickly now with our two-year-old daughter that she literally will copy everything we say. So, we have to stop saying some of the things we used to say before. Yep. Um, now, four kids, another one on the way, business, um, sport, we've talked about those things. We haven't talked about the podcast. You did mention you're a co-host on the podcast, The Fight with Teddy Atlas. Um, one thing that I heard the other day, uh, what's a podcast? It's that thing where you talk and no one listens. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that's what ha- is happening to you guys. I've listened to uh, four out of the five episodes, I think. Uh, love the show. Tell me what that's like for you sitting across talking to these amazing athletes uh, working with Teddy, working with Rob, what's that experience like? Yeah, Rob is Rob Moore, the producer, and he's uh, Teddy's manager. And Teddy was recently um, uh, on-air commentary for ESPN, but recently they've stopped using him on some of the live broadcasts, and he was still looking for an outlet. And um, Rob had discussed with me the possibility of launching the podcast and helping them as a co-host. And um, short of being the middleweight champion of the world, commenting on boxing is like my dream job. If, if I could figure out a way to make a living talking about boxing, that would be almost too good too good to be true. Too much for one person to handle. And um, I'm super appreciative uh, of Teddy for allowing me to co-host his show with him. I mean, Teddy is a Hall of Fame trainer. He's trained 18 world champions. He was Mike Tyson's first coach under Customato in Catskill. He's just a legend of the sport. And I have been a huge boxing fan for years. When I worked at the prison, Mickey Ward, the topic of the movie, the the subject of the movie, the fighter, um, was a guard there. His brother, Dickie Eklund, who was his trainer, um, was an inmate. And, um, that was an awesome experience working with Mickey and then to see him fighting Arturo Gotti on HBO and then to see him beat Arturo Gotti on HBO was just incredible and um, really had a huge Im- impact on my um, love of the sport early on. So working with Teddy is just like a dream come true. We get to have awesome guests on that um, Teddy has access to and typically um, Rob and I will come up with an outline for the show and Teddy will like veto or add or cut whatever he wants to talk about. And then ultimately it's Teddy's show and I'm just kind of trying to steer traffic and get Teddy talking because Teddy has really interesting views on life and kind of motivation of the podcast was to not just apply to um, boxing and fighters, but to give examples of how life can be the fight and um, how 
lessons from the ring can be applied to your everyday life. You don't have to be in punching someone in the face to be motivated and prepared like a boxer would be. And, um, you know, Teddy comes out with some gems on the show. And actually, Dustin Poirier, who won the um, interim welterweight, I think welterweight title last night on the UFC, beat Max Holloway. He, um, after the fight, he quoted Teddy and uh, from an interview we did with Andrew Cancio, who I'll come back to, but Teddy said, uh, you know, on any given night, you can get in that ring and make life fair and level the playing field and nothing else matters. And he said that quote after we saw Andrew Cancio, Mexican-American kid from Blythe, California, super nice guy. I've become really good friends with him. And um, I tuned in one night on um, The Zone and was watching Andrew Cancio fight Alberto Machado. I knew Alberto Machado as a 20 and 0 uh, world champion. I, I want to say lightweight, um, lightweight world champion, I think 130. And um, he's trained by Freddie Roach. He's promoted by uh, Oscar De La Hoya, Golden Boy. And here comes Andrew Cancio, what you would describe as an opponent. Cancio gets dropped in the first round with a huge uppercut. And I'm thinking, oh, this poor kid. The other kid is like four inches taller, looks polished like kind of saunters back to the corner after like beating him up in the first round. Cancio came out in the second round looking like a man possessed and he literally figuratively just chopped Machado down like a tree, just started banging him to the body and hurting him every shot, timing him perfectly. And um, he won the world title and he works full time as um, working a jackhammer for SoCal Gas. So I saw that and I literally reached out to him the next day or in the next couple of days on um, Facebook Instant Messenger and he got back to me through his um, promoter and we, uh, we had him on the show and it was just... Man, it just gives me chills thinking about it. This dude is like working full time, not unlike Mickey Ward, just working, hustling, and gets a shot at the world title and wins. It's like like better than Rocky. It's it's real. That show was incredible to listen to, and um, you know, you described it perfectly just then. But uh, for anyone, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can go and listen to the show. But um, the story is incredible. It's uh, an underdog story. Um, it is. Uh, something to to hear about and the fact that the things that Teddy said in that episode these poignant one-liners these proverbs these these uh inspirational quotes just got me super jacked up it was so cool to hear yeah he 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 Teddy seems to see things on a different level frequently you know he said and he's not afraid to speak the truth which is what i love about doing this show is it's it's you know we were talking about amir khan is fighting um terence crawford next week i said i don't i I can't believe they made this fight terence crawford's been knocked out three times viciously now listen take nothing away from terence crawford he's like a silver medalist at the olympics he's fought everyone i love him he's tough should I lie and say I think he has a chance against Terence Crawford? My truth is, I don't think he does. I think that Terence Crawford is going to knock him out badly. For Amir Khan's sake, I hope not. I have no like preference. But And Teddy will do the same thing and tell you what he thinks, but it doesn't mean that we're rooting against it. And some of the British fans were like, why are you guys giving uh, uh, Crawford a hard time? I said, dude, I'm not. I love Terence. I love um, Amir Khan. Um I want to see him do well. I just think Terrence Crawford is going to like be too much for him. And uh, when we were interviewing Cancio to come back to what, what, what brought that up about being truthful, he said, 
uh, Andrew was talking about when he turned pro and being an amateur and that he wasn't getting decisions and blah, blah, blah. And Teddy said, look, uh, no offense, but you're not a good amateur. Your style isn't an amateur. You take time. You're like a fine wine. You take time to like age and mature, even in a fight. And that's true. And he came out slow in the first round, got dropped, almost lost. But he just handled himself perfectly, took a knee, looked at the ref, looked at his corner, took instructions, took the full eight count, got up just at nine. And, you know, Teddy just is truthful with everyone by telling him, like, yeah, no kidding, you weren't good in amateurs. I can see that. Your your style doesn't make for a good amateur. You're not picture perfect. What was Andrew's uh, response to that in the studio? Obviously, listening to it, um, it made a, a ton of sense. But had anyone talked to him about that or shared that that was what they thought about his amateur career? I think he loved it. I mean, he's like I said, we've become really good friends, and I and he they recently made some promotional books on Andrew, and they used some quotes uh, from the from the episode we did with him and some photos, still photos of a super flattering, even to be included in the in a book with Teddy Atlas and a world champion boxer. It's just like I said, a dream come true. But Andrew is a realist. He was like, yeah, you're right. You know, he 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 had a good pro career. He fought for a world title against Jojo Diaz and lost. Um, got knocked out a TKO, but same thing. And and um, he retired and a new manager came along. He was having managerial problems, promotion problems, not getting the fights he wanted. He fought two fights under Golden Boy early in his career. When he lost to Jojo Diaz, they dropped him. So he decided to retire and a new manager talked him into coming back. He had two fights against, again, as an opponent. They, they definitely thought they were going to beat him up. Two Russian kids, both undefeated. He beat them both. One of them he hurt, like put it on him. And got the shot at Machado, and I'm sure Machado thought this isn't this is a layup. I'm gonna like run this guy over, make a few bucks, and move on to the next one. But Andrew Cancio had different ideas, and now he's getting a rematch with them on I think June 12th, and that's gonna be a good one. That's in California, so we'll be going to that one too. Love it. Um, and I think you you mentioned about how fighting is um you know translates to life, and I would say that endurance sports also translate to life in the same way. And I talk to my wife all the time about the process, getting ready for a race and the journey of getting ready and, and getting fit and getting prepared. And I think that is where the real joy is. It doesn't necessarily always have to be about the result. Um, is that something that you have kind of developed over your time? It is about that journey and it is about the process of getting ready. Yeah, for sure. The struggle is definitely the training and and even the elite pros will tell you that race day compared to training, uh, you know, six weeks out trying to run a hundred miles and it's pissing rain and or it's snowing. That's the hard part. The race, you know, if you run the race properly for the marathon, it shouldn't really be hard until the last 10K if you've done it right. And even that is kind of like a celebration of all the like suffering that you've done to get there. And um for me, and Teddy and I talked about this on the last episode, after his fight, uh, he was feeling a little bit like uh, anxious, couldn't sleep, was thinking about the fight. And I said, you know, that's not unlike any of these endurance events or any big event in your life. You spend so much time getting ready for it and so much, relatively speaking, getting ready for uh, an event, especially something that's like a personal journey like like endurance sports for a person, other people who aren't involved in it might not appreciate or understand why it's so significant, but it is. And I feel like win or lose, there's always this massive letdown the week after and almost like a manic depression because, you know, whether you've won or lost, if you've done an Ironman or a marathon, you're sore as hell. So you can't really exercise the way you have been or the way you'd like to. So maybe some people like the time off, but that consistency and um, routine is what my 
emotionally and psychologically what my what I crave and need to be at my best. When I'm thrown off that schedule, it's like bad for everyone. Most of, mostly my wife and kids because they get the worst version of me. And then it's like a double-edged sword because not only am I being like difficult with them at times or short or grouchy, but then I beat myself up over it for the next like, you know, so many hours thinking about that I'm disappointing them and how can I get better and find the right balance for everyone, not just myself. Um, I talked to a mutual friend of ours, John Joseph, about this, transferring one addiction to another. And it, I'm getting a sense from yourself and I'm getting a sense from myself as well that there is an addiction to endurance sports, but the endorphin hit and the wanting to be moving. It, is that fair to say? Oh, very fair. And uh, interesting that you say bring up the addiction because I've had issues with addiction in the past, not something that I've ever spoken about publicly. But um, yeah, I feel like this addiction of all the alternative addictions, this is my safest one. And this is the one that keeps me kind of on the path. And the reason I thought of that is just because when I first met John Joseph, I was a bit of a mess living in the city, working in finance, kind of doing like just making all the like mistakes that an idiot would make. And, um, but I was boxing or training, um, a ton. And I would see John Joseph at the boxing gym every single evening. And that's where we first became friends. So then we lost connect. We, we, I lost contact with him for a few years. And then I saw him on the boat going over to the start of the uh, New York Ironman. And I was like, dude, what are you doing here? We both were kind of like, what the hell are you doing here? I mean, it was like, polar opposite worlds from where we knew each other from and um but yeah to answer your question this is definitely an addiction but it's one that i can live with given the alternatives yeah 100 percent. and uh john told that story about how he looks over and he sees you there and you sitting with all the pros and they're kind of like <laughs> what are you doing here uh and he'd just come from a show he had a broken foot um and he talked to, about how rich roll gives him shit every time saying are you ever going to have a race that doesn't have drama involved because there's always some level of drama with John's races oh for sure him and i have so many like weird mutual friends like my friend rob moore who does who produces the show with um teddy um him and i are really good friends and have a bunch of we work we have a bunch of work mandates that we're working on together and um one day, John Joseph, if he wants to talk to you, he, he's funny in this way. He'll just FaceTime you. And I'm like, dude, only you would FaceTime me. Like, how do you know like what I'm doing? Maybe I'm in the shower or something. He goes, yeah, I just figured if you're in the shower, you won't answer. I was like, well, you're going to be surprised one of these days when I do answer in the shower. And so, you know, he, I, I love that dude. But he was like, FaceTimes me one day and Rob's on the phone. I'm like, what? He goes, dude, you know John Joseph? I'm like, what the hell are you doing with John Joseph? You know, you don't think of John Joseph, the lead singer of the Cro-Mags, hanging out with a bunch of triathlon nerds, which is how I identify myself, by the way, not just Rob. And um, it was just uh, funny to see. And then since then, like, um, Rob, Rob had David Sinclair, um, the founder of Life Biosciences, who I've done some work with in the past here in Boston, on the uh, Joe Rogan show. So we were together at, the, at um, Joe's studios and... Somehow John's name came up and Rogan, Joe Rogan looked at me and goes, how do you know John Joseph? Yeah. And then coincidentally, he had books from Jesse Itzler and Lance Armstrong, a bunch of other guys that I'm friendly with. And I was like, actually, like you have books from like half of these books up here. I feel like I know these people. It's, it's an interesting community there that like endurance kind of motivational 
uh, people with a voice in this space like Joe. Okay, Joe is more in Joe Rogan's more into fighting and stuff, but I feel like he has all the same interests about life extension, longevity, which is what David Sinclair's specialty is, and uh, endurance sports and and combat sports. So we have a lot in common, and uh, it's just an interesting little world that I'm happy to be a part of, and I I love being able to like listen to guys like Joe Rogan and Rich Roll, John Joseph. I love all his interviews and, and yeah, this having this, this um, forum with Teddy to kind of have my voice be heard as I don't want to say an authority on boxing, but as uh, having an opinion on boxing is just like I said, a dream assignment to be associated with Teddy and, and, and given a chance to do this is just, awesome yeah i agree i have the same feeling the the ability for the last three years to talk to the world's best triathletes and cyclists and runners and endurance athletes is really a dream come true for me um and i think what i've really noticed is that people really look out for each other in this community so if you're a good person and you're credible and you're friendly and you take care of someone then more often than not someone's ready to make an introduction or someone's ready to help you along your journey as well because we're all in it together that's exactly right, and um, it's funny you say that because I, my I work in finance and uh, I run business development for an asset manager in LA, and recently started uh, consulting for them so I could work on some third party mandates as well. And um, I would say ninety to a hundred percent of the business relationships I have in terms of like relationships that are actually productive, where you actually get substantive substantive things done are connections that I've made through the endurance world. And even I was listening to your most recent show when you had um, the former CEO from um, Smartwool and Tom Shoes on the show. He had a heart attack. And I saw that he was coming on the show and read the notes and realized, I think I know of this guy. And turns out a guy I train with in LA frequently on the bike, um, Attila, He's a, he's a bike mechanic. He was telling me of this um, guy's story. He had a heart attack. Blah, blah, and then I heard him interviewed on your show. And I was like, to your point, it's just like such a small world. And I hear the interview and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. In my mind, I'm like, dude, you don't know that guy. I'm like, well, I feel like I know him close yeah. enough. I feel like I could call him tomorrow, you know? And it's like you said, if someone like yourself called and said, hey, I want to interview Teddy or I want to talk to Rob Moore about something or David Sinclair. It's like for the people that have kind of earned that trust in this little community, as crazy as that might sound, it's like yeah, not only would you do it, but you're happy to do it because you know that they'd be happy to do the same for you. And that's what I have found mostly about the endurance community. It's very um, protective and um, um, supportive. I would agree 100%. And that was, you know, that's how we met. We met... Yeah, we, we crossed paths of the Everyman Jack Tri team, but we didn't really interact on the team. But Mark Hodgelich from 29029 Another great us. guy. Um, you know, we've had Rob on the show. We've had Mark on the show. We've had, um, you know, now we've got yourself. I'm, I'm working with Mark to go and talk to Jesse. So there's this community of people, which is amazing. Now, um, we did briefly talk about triathlon and, and we were on the same team for a short amount of time. What Do you have any triathlon goals coming up? Yeah, I was waiting to see how this race goes tomorrow, but I'm thinking that I'm going to do um, Lake Placid and try to get a spot to Kona. Um, just because I have been a little bit lazy in my triathlon 
endeavors recently. I only did a couple races last year. And um, so I'm going to try to do, I think, either Lake Placid or Montremblant, whatever the late summer ones are, are potential races. And with the goal of being trying to qualify for Kona and um, give another crack at Kona, which is a crazy thing to wish for because it's such a hellacious race. (laughs) Yeah, it's... uh you have to do it, but once you've done it, you're like, why Why did I do that? And I can't <laughs> wait to go back again. <laughs> Dude, it's, it, I've had some bad experiences there. Even when I've done well, it's ended badly. I don't think I've ever done the race. Even when I've had good races that didn't end in the medical tent with an IV, it's just, um, man, it's debilitating. Yeah, it's a very, very special place to, uh, spe- special place to be and to race, um, that's for sure. Now, um, you talked about Marathon doesn't usually get hard until about 32Ks in, 20 miles in. What is your inner voice telling you tomorrow at 20 miles? Time to go to work. Let's do this. You know, like um, Teddy told a story. Teddy tells a story in his book where Mike Tyson, as a kid, they go to smokers, you know, like boxing shows that aren't really sanctioned, but it's all, all amateurs and they just match them up based on looks and appearances. Then you get to know the amateurs. So Mike goes to fight in Pennsylvania and he's fighting a big kid who's just tough. Mike's beating the hell out of him, but the kid's tough. He keeps getting up. And it's only three, either three or four two minute rounds. And the guy, I think that's what it was. I might be off, but it's something in that context. And Tyson comes back after the second round and flops down on the chair like he doesn't have an ounce of energy left. And all he's done has been beating the guy up. And Teddy says in his book, he can tell that Mike is ready to give up. He's, he's, He's not used to facing resistance. And even though he's killing the guy, he's about ready to like just go down and give up. So late in the fight with like 30 seconds left maybe, Tyson's in the corner and the guy's hitting him with bombs because Mike has punched himself out. And and in in boxing, if you jump up on the um, ring as a trainer, they'll they'll um, it's the equivalent of throwing in the towel. You can't get on the ring, on the ring apron. And Teddy jumps up on the ring and he yells at right at Mike Tyson, uh, "Don't you effing do it! Don't you effing do it!" Because he could see Mike's about to just quit and go down from shots. And um, he stays up and he obviously wins a lopsided decision. But on the way back to the um, locker room, Tyson says to him just like very casually and like in a low voice, like, thank you. And almost like a reluctant thank you. They didn't have the best relationship, but it was just interesting to hear Teddy make that observation of like, don't you do it. And that isn't too dissimilar to what I'm feeling because I'm sure you've been there too. And anyone who's run a marathon or done an Ironman or maybe even a 10K has felt this way. Like, I could make any excuse under the sun right now to step off this course and be like, oh, I pulled a hamstring. I twisted my ankle. The only person, A, who cares about your result is you as an amateur. No one cares. We all like to think people care. No one cares. I remind myself of that all the time, but I care, and I know if I quit. Last night, there was um, bo- there was a, a fight on the undercard of uh, Clarissa Shields' fight on Showtime. Two heavyweights, one um, European um, um, contender and against a prospect. And in the first round, I want to say it was the first round, they had a slight headbutt, and the kid got a little cut on, the, on, the, um, on his eye. It was a decent cut, but it wasn't like blinding him. They just clashed heads. And- you could see the kid quitting. The ref was like, can you see? And he's like, oh, I, I can't really see. Dude, your eye is open and you're looking right at him. You have a cut on your eye. You don't haven't been poked in the eye. You haven't been stabbed. You have a cut on your eyebrow, which, listen, I don't, I'm not in the guy's mind, but I'm telling you what I saw is a guy who was like, I can get paid, get out of here without a loss 
This guy's a prospect. He's probably going to beat me. Or I can just take my money and leave here with a no decision against this guy. I'm taking the no decision. And the, and the ref, the doctor was kind of like, can you see me or not? And he's holding up a f- one finger. And he's like, how many fingers am I holding up? He's like, oh, I don't, I can't really see. And you're like, dude, we know you can see that. Yeah. You know, he, and he was, he was like half covering one eye. So I was like, even if you can't see with your bad eye, you can see it with your good eye. Whereas, you know, you see sometimes John Jones had a fight recently against um, Anthony Smith. I think that's his name, Anthony Smith. And John Jones hit him with an illegal knee while he was down on the ground. I mean, smashed him in the head. And the dude rolled over. He could have just stayed down and John would have been disqualified and that guy would have been the world champion. And he said, no, nah, I'm all right, let's fight. He just, he had too much integrity to be like, ah, no, even though he could have been the champion. Mm-hmm. And I think Joe Rogan asked him, like, you could have been the champ if you had stayed down. Oh, no, sorry, it wasn't It wasn't Joe Rogan. It was um, on the MMA show on um, Ariel Hawani said to him on the interview the Monday after the fight, you could have been the world champ. What are you thinking about that? I think I would have stayed down. And he was like... I can't win the world title like that. He's like, look, it'd be one thing if I genuinely couldn't go on. Yeah, it hurt. He guy kneed me in the head while I was down on the ground. It killed. But I knew that it wasn't going to stop me from fighting, and I didn't want to win like that. Yeah. But that was, it's just such a, um, such a contrast from seeing someone who's like, dude, you got a cut on your eye. I get it. It's a bad cut. You're bleeding. But this is a fight. You're not like... Uh, playing golf and someone hit you with a backswing and busted your head open and you're like, I'm not going to continue. Like in a hockey game, they would put stitches on that in the friggin' on the bench in between shifts and you'd be back out there. Like, I get it. It's a lot to overcome, but you signed up to be a fighter. Yeah. Like, Well, I think it's the competitive spirit, right? And it feels like um, the best athletes that I've talked to, there is this innate competitive spirit that you just can't necessarily put your finger on but it's this burning desire within them that they won't quit and they'll just when it's time to go to work when it's time to dig deep and give it what you've got they'll do that they'll make that choice rather than going the other way and taking the easy option yeah and if you look at if you look at running like a fight right the 20 miles to 26 miles is the equivalent of like the last two rounds and you're cut above both eyes and no one would fault you for being like i can't see anymore or going down and not getting up getting up right after the 10 count there's a million ways to get out of that situation when you want to and teddy talks about it all the time are you like throwing don't hurt me punches like get off me punches or are you throwing punches to win and that's not dissimilar to a race not to not to minimalize boxing and make running even in the same category as combat sports but it's similar mindset i know that no one cares if i step off this course and i'm hurting and i feel like i can't take another step but i can also just like close my eyes and try to like get through the next few miles and make it to the finish line and salvage what's left of this race should it be going bad so you it's time to go to work 20 miles 21 miles it's a recheck with yourself 22 miles and then it probably comes you know the next light post or the next tree or get to the next aid station or just don't walk like is that the way it goes for you it's like that those reminders and that self-talk comes sooner and sooner and sooner and more often as you get further on in the race Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's more self-talk when things are going to shit. When things are going well, it's kind of like, oh, man, I'm on a good one here. Oh, my God. In my mind, I'm like, my wife is not going to believe this. But when I call her, she's like, oh, good for you. And I got to remind myself, like, no one cares. But in my mind, I'm like, holy shit, I'm on a good one here. This is awesome. And, like, then you start, like... I ran Tucson um, uh, 18 months ago and I came in third and I was like the guy in second finished 11 seconds ahead of me. But at one point I couldn't even see them, the two leaders. And um, 
it just felt good to finish a marathon at like with something left in the tank. Cause I was closing. I mean, he was probably, I don't know, two minutes ahead of me with like a half a mile to go. And I was closing on him so fast. And I think if it was for the win, I could have probably even dug deeper, but it was a second. My feet were on fire, but it just felt good. I crossed the line, took a few deep breaths. And it was the first time I've run a marathon and not literally felt like I was going to drop dead, which is what gives me some um, hope for tomorrow that I can like get this right and finish strong and have something in the tank for the last three, instead of thinking like that Iron Man death march, like, just let me get to the next light post. All right, I'm going to walk to the light post and I'm going to run to the next one. I, I want to come into this thinking like, all right, if I can close it out here in like under six minutes, I'm going to have a really strong time that I can feel good about. Yeah. Um, on the reverse of that, you, you might not feel well. You might not feel great for the first half. What's that like for you? You know, you have to dig a little bit deeper a bit sooner or are you telling yourself it's a long day, you've still got another two hours to go, take your time, be patient. What's that like? Yeah, you have to do that because marathon, you have go through good patches and bad patches. You just have to remember when things are going good to make sure you're doing the right things. Are you getting calories in while you feel good? Because when you feel like shit, you don't want to take anything. You don't want to eat anything. So yeah, early on, I'm trying to stay <laughs> somewhat disciplined, although in uh, the last marathon I did, I was trying to run 228 and ran through the first half in 110. And that was like, I'm telling myself, oh my God, I'm feeling good. This is going to be a special day. I bet I can hold like a 112 on the back half and run low 120s. And then, you know, around mile 18, I knew it was going sideways. By 20, I was like, oh no, I can't believe this. But that was one of those ones where I could have easily just stepped off. But then I was thinking, you know what? I still have to get back to the finish. I'll be mortified to have a DNF at a marathon. I'm just going to try to put my head down. And when I say I emptied the tank, I mean, I crossed the finish line. I, I literally was like, man, please don't let me die out here. I'm going to be so embarrassing. And just struggling down the finish chute. Even in the finish, I mean, it was like, you know, you want to give that last little kick. It was all I could do to stay on standing up. And uh, yeah, that was an example of how things can go really bad because you felt so good. So, I'm going to try to avoid that tomorrow. Yeah, 115, 115. Yes, that's the goal. Um, Ken, you're, you mentioned earlier 48 years old, 47, yep. 48. Be 48 in May. Um, what are your tips for uh, staying fit, staying in top shape, performing as you get older? You talked about Joe and, and his um, uh, ideas about uh, aging and, and getting better as you, as you get older. What are some of those tips and things you can share about getting and staying in top performance and top shape as you get older? Yeah, about two years ago, I changed my diet to uh, um, primarily vegetarian. I try to eat vegan as much as I can, but you know, if the kids are having pizza, I'm not, I think when you tell people you're eating a vegan diet, it's almost like telling them that you've joined a cult to a certain extent and God forbid someone sees you eating cheese and you told them you're a vegan. So, I hesitate putting any label on, on, on my dietary habits, but I do try to eat vegan diet. Like I said, I, I never eat meat, um, but I do have some cheese occasionally. And um, my, my biggest tip is to create a routine, set goals, have some accountability, just all the common sense things. And it's, you know, that y you would hear from anyone. And I think that a big, a big component of my improvement actually has to do with Strava. Knowing that everyone's going to see every run, you don't want to go out there and put like, uh, you know, I ran four miles. And again, this is all relative. Please don't attack me if this is your distances. But, you know, if I run a four miles at 8.30 pace, I'm kind of like, oh, man, that's, you, you know, it's just like it's in my mind. Everyone's seeing what you're doing. So you want to have things up there that 
you're proud of, you know, and, and sometimes there are really slow recovery thing, recovery runs up there, but you know what I mean? There's that accountability when no, no one, everyone's going to see your race time. Everyone's going to see your big workouts. And that's a good, that's a good accountability tool for me. Knowing that people are seeing it all. Like I don't ha- like I, you know, I know some people train and they don't put their workouts up there and I get it if you're a professional and you don't want your competitors to see, but that accountability factor is huge for me. And, uh, again, probably from my own insecurities, but whatever it is, that's that to me, the, 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 those points to me are the, are the most critical for having any kind of success in anything in life is structure, accountability, routine, and, and create good habits. Like getting up and running for me is a habit that is, you know, an addictive habit that if I don't get to do it, it's just not going to be a good day. And then I have to have it hanging over my head the rest of the day because I know that I have to do something. You and I have had the opportunity to meet and interact with some really incredible people over our time. What has been the most memorable interaction or advice that you've been able to receive? I would say that it's probably uh, the recent time I've spent with Teddy, just listening to his pearls of wisdom to fighters and about fighting and how it relates to life. You know, with uh, even the comment to Andrew Cancio about you have um, you have an opportunity to level the playing field. Tomorrow we're going to start with all the professionals are going to start and run the same exact course, and you're going to get a chance to have a crack at them, whether they like it or not. And that's one thing I like about Ironman and Marathon is you're never getting out there and uh, shooting hoops with LeBron. You're not going to get in and spar with uh, Terrence Crawford. But at the Boston Marathon, you can race Des Linden, and you can race Abdi Abdi Rockman. And, you know, that's, that's motivation for me and Teddy talking about, you know, yeah, these guys feel just like you do. Even these gladiators on one of our shows, he said, even these gladiators that get in there and fight for money, they have the same nerves and fears that you have. Everyone does. When people say they're not afraid of something, it's like, uh, so dishonest. Like everyone's afraid. The difference is brave people do it anyway. And I always try to impart that wisdom on my children because you see them and they're scared. And it's like, I hope that they have the courage to tell me when they're scared so I can help them deal with that fear. Fear is healthy, right? It protects us. It can, it can be our enemy or our friend. Knowing that the other guy in a fight is scared too, it's like, how are you going to handle your nerves? Because he has them as well. Everyone does. Mike Tyson will tell you he was nervous. You know, so, um, yeah, I would say that most of my, um, some of the most impactful advice or um, motivation I've received recently is from Teddy and doing the show with him. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I quite often talk about inner voice and, and what we've created to be about that shared suffering and that shared story of endurance athletes. Des Linden still has to get up in the morning and um, you know, knock the alarm button when she, when she doesn't want to get up and get out of bed and go running. You have to do that. I have to do that. Everyone who is in, involved or has goals or ambitions in endurance sports have to go through the same things to get to the start line. You're on the same exact course. We're not going to be shooting a three-pointer at Madison Square Garden, but we do get to toe the line with people like Des, and I think that's what's really incredible about, about what we do. Um, I wish you all the best for tomorrow. I'm going to be tracking. Uh, we're going to be at the Lennox Hotel with the New Balance crew. And uh, I'm going to be looking for a 115 and a 114.59. Uh, and then I look forward to uh, sharing a high five once you're done, mate. I really appreciate you joining me today and uh, I wish you all the best. 
Oh, thank you, man. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope I don't disappoint you tomorrow. <laughs> no one cares. Yeah, that's right. I got to keep telling myself, no one cares, just me. <laughs> just you. Ken, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you, brother. Thank you again to Ken. That was such a great conversation. If you'd like to read more about Ken's journey, head to innervoice.life and check out today's feature article. As I mentioned during the show, I really love the opportunity to meet and converse with interesting and incredible athletes like Ken. If you love the show, please go and leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would mean a lot. Once again, thanks to the team at iCore Labs. Not only do they sponsor the Inner Voice audio experience, they also support many, many incredible athletes out in the endurance sports community. iCore nerds out on science to deliver the most bio-available product you can get. Their mission is to provide the highest quality, most effective, full-spectrum hemp extract products available, allowing you to have your best day possible. Head to iCoreLabs.com and save 15% off each and every order of iCore by using the code INNERVOICE at checkout. Also, as you may have heard from our new show, The Coaching Call, I've started to ramp up my training to get ready for the 141 miles at high altitude during the SBT gravel cycling event. And iCore has played a big part in me being able to back up my training day after day. Give it a try. I'm sure you will love it. I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Audio Experience.